This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splann. Thank you for listening. Today's topic, we'll be discussing dilator training for tight and painful pelvic floor muscles. Our guest today is physical therapist Sarah Salazar. Sarah attended the University of Utah and received her Bachelor's of Exercise Sports Science in 2014, followed by her Doctorate of Physical Therapy in 2019 at the University of Incarnate Word. She is currently working in Salt Lake City, Utah at Mountainland Physical Therapy and specializes in pelvic health. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, so for our listeners out there, we're going to kind of give you a little background on dilator training. What are good patients that should be completing this type of intervention, um, what are some specific considerations that we should be taking into account with these patient population? Um, What it looks like if you can come to the clinic first and then continue at home or what that might look like if you don't have access to a pelvic floor therapist and you have to kind of do it all on your own. Um, We'll also talk about different dilators, positioning, um, what it kind of looks like from the clinic standpoint when physical therapists do it with you, bowel and inclusion and differential diagnosis on when we should probably refer out if things aren't progressing well. So to jump right in, Sarah, will you kind of tell our listeners why a patient might need to perform dilator training? Yeah. So dilator training is a great intervention. It's something that patients can do on their own. Um, So an individual who might be coming in with complaints of painful intercourse, maybe pain with tampon use, um, maybe they have undergone uh, treatments for cancer, such as radiation. Um, those individuals typically have um, a more of a tightening or a restriction within the vaginal canal. And dilators are they're a great tool to really progress them at home and give them a lot of autonomy and independence with their treatments. Definitely. And I know there's a lot of patients out there too that you know would love to be able to even have intercourse and they come to us and they want to have kids three years ago. And this is definitely that progression that they will need to get to in order to obtain intercourse. The research shows that individuals must obtain the dilator the same size or slightly larger than their partner in order to be successful. And I guess we might've jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves. So Sarah, will you describe to our listeners, what are dilators? What are these crazy things? Yeah. So they're basically a cylindrical tube. So they come in varying sizes. Um, I think the smallest one that we typically use in the clinic is about the size of my pinky. Um, And then they gradually progress up in both um, diameter and, and length. So that can help with all the layers of the vaginal canal or the pelvic floor at once. Um, or you can even use them if you have, say, one specific muscle that is giving you issues, you can kind of tilt them a little bit and release that muscle as well. So basically, they're just a gradual progression of, of... I think the cylindrical tube was like a perfect description. I think, you know, sometimes in layman terms, it's just easy to like break and cut that tension with a knife and just say it's a medical grade dildo. That's really what mm-hmm. it is. We're just progressing from a small size to a large size to get you to accommodate what your partner obtains. And so that is kind of the gist of what a dilator is. Um, There are so many different types out there. There's hard plastic, there's silicone, there's glass. Um, 
there's some that vibrate. So, you know, there's different types for different conditions. Definitely if it's a super restricted pelvic floor um, or if it's like post-vaginal plasty for a transgender um, patient population, that those are very, very rigid dilators. However, patients with significant vaginismus, so those are the patients with significant pain, the muscles of the pelvic floor are tightening up inadvertently. They might benefit more from medical grade silicone because it can kind of mold and bend a little bit better within the vaginal canal. And I would say it reproduces more of penile texture compared to those more hard plastic or glass type um, dilators. So now that we've given you all kind of a baseline of what are dilators, what are they used for? Sarah, can you discuss with our listeners, what are common patient presentations and goals when we are determining dilator progression for patients? Definitely. So our common um, dial, or excuse me, our common patient presentation is going to be pelvic floor muscular restrictions, um, whether that's muscular or it could even be scar tissue restrictions. It could be from decreased mobility of the vaginal tissue itself, um, from like, like we said, radiation treatments, or even maybe a autoimmune disorder, lichen sclerosis, that kind of presentation. So when we do our evaluation on them, I'll usually start externally to kind of give a, a feel if we can even go internal. So on an individual, say we are doing a digital assessment intravaginally, we will kind of see, are they even even able to withstand the pressure of just my finger intravaginally? If that's the case, if they're able to withstand a little bit, maybe we'll get into dilator training later on. Um, if they can't even withstand the pressure of my finger, then we'll know, okay, this individual is definitely going to get into dilator training sooner rather than later, kind of depending on their presentation. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. There's definitely those patients out there where you're coming at them with gloves and the legs just clamp down like a clam. Um, and you can tell that those ones are going to be the tough patients where you might not even get to the pelvic exam, just trying to decrease the tone in the hips and the abdomen, and the pelvis and work on different techniques to even get to the vaginal canal, which is always an interesting presentation. Some patients like that might be cultural. It could be because of a history of abuse. Um, it could just be because they've had repetitive pain with penetration. And so their body just goes into that protection mode. And, and so those are definitely a more severe case and the slower progression for sure. Um, so when we kind of talk about progression with therapy, talk to us there a little bit about kind of your therapy progression, kind of from eval and session one, session two, from maybe stretching and tender point to dilators and when, at what point along that track you bring in the dilators and the home exercises and things like that. Definitely. So when we do, or excuse me, when I'm doing more of a progression throughout with my patients, so I typically will try and get to the point where they can withstand at least my digit inserted um, and being able to release all the way to level three or the innermost layer of the pelvic floor. Usually once we can get to that point, I'll have a better understanding of what size dilator would even be appropriate for them. Um, so from there, we've been cueing for down training or relaxation, muscular disengagement of the pelvic floor, if you will, um, throughout that whole time. So maybe that's treatment, uh, treatments one and two, and then they're feeling good, feeling a little bit more confident. And then I'll start my 
education on the dilators at that point. Might not necessarily go into dilator training on that day. Um, I like to give them that kind of heads up and be like, hey, so this is what they are. They come in different sizes and I'll show them all the sizes depending on their anxiety levels. I might not show them the largest sizes at that point. But um, Good call, uh, good call. Right. <laughs> so from there, um, they'll have it in their brain of like, okay, so maybe next session, we know you can withstand the size of my finger. This level one dilator is smaller than my first digit. We're just going to see if we can insert something and remove it without pressure, without pain, without, you know, just kind of loading them up with these positive affirmations to where then when we do try it, hopefully they're able to use the skills that they've learned to then um, be able to withstand that dilator. And usually the first one now when I'm using it in the clinic after I've done a tender point release and after we're really kind of getting used to the process of pelvic floor therapy. It's less for me as a tool to actually do stretching, digitally stretching, and more of a um, confidence booster for my patients because it, they're like, oh, wow, that's the first time anything's been inserted and removed from my vaginal canal or my pelvic floor without pain. So that kind of can show them like it is possible. Um, so that's kind of more of that confidence boost. Um, from there, then I'll, I'll definitely explain to them like the second one might not go as smooth. It might be a little bit painful. Um, and when we're inserting, we go really, really slow. Um, and so they're able to communicate with me okay, we're going to pause here. I'm feeling a little bit higher levels of pain. Let's pause. Let's bear down and relax those muscles. And then we may continue. We may not. It's always up to the patient in my practice. I don't ever push them um, unless it's, you know, indicated, but I, I try to let them be in control when it comes to the dilators, just because it's more, it can be a little bit more scary for some individuals. Um, but then we'll just gradually progress once we can insert and remove a size that is pain-free or relatively minimal pain, then if they're wanting to, we can progress up to the next size. Yeah, that's great. I know, um, you know, every pelvic therapist is a little bit different. And in the state of Utah, our practice act allows physical therapist to insert dilators. And I do know that other states are a little bit more restrictive. And so I feel very, very lucky that we can actually perform the dilator training in the clinic with our patients because the value with that is so important. If they are doing dilating at home, our goal in the clinic is really to try and progress them to the next size. So then they can be successful at home and we kind of go through the difficult, hard stuff in the clinic. And once they're successful with the size in the clinic, then that's when they start using at home and then we progress to the next size in the clinic. Some other tools that I've found that can help to decrease the pelvic tone. Um, so you had mentioned bearing down or that pelvic push, like you're trying to have a bowel movement. Um, deep belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing can be super helpful to decrease the tone. Um, even gentle in and out, like an inch or even a couple centimeter movement, nothing crazy, but just gentle in and out. And I tell the patients, hey, this is what the tissue is meant to have, where it's meant to have movement. It's meant to have a little bit of friction. We're just getting the tissues used to that movement. So then when it carries over into intercourse, it's used to that movement. Um, and then sometimes I'll even um, have the patient focus on other sensations around them. So sometimes patients begin to catastrophize their symptoms, um, worried about any minor increase in tenderness. And I just let them know, you know, in my clinic, I... 
I'm expecting a little bit of discomfort, just like stretching the hamstrings or stretching your knee post-op, no pain, no gain in that regards. And so, you know, I set that expectation that, yeah, there is going to be a little bit of discomfort, but I never wanted over a four out of 10 on that zero to 10 pain scale. Um, because we want to make sure that that room is a nice, healthy environment and they're not going into protection mode every time they come into physical therapy. And so those sensations of focusing on, okay, what, what is my breathing like? What is the temperature of the room? Um, and if, if partners are involved, you know, have the partner rub your arm or rub your thigh. So you're focusing on that sensation rather than hyper-focusing on every minor detail of the dilator training with insertion and with removal. And even with removal, sometimes patients' pelvic floor go into like a tightness once that dilator's been in there for a minute, I have found. And so similar, like you, you can't just pull it out. It's got to be a nice, slow removal, doing that gentle push in the belly breathing to help decrease that pelvic tone and tightness when it kind of likes to grab around it. Um, I've noticed some patients have more pain with removal than they do with insertion. So, you know, every patient presentation is different and the treatment will always have to be individualized for that presentation. Um, so now, Sarah, let's maybe talk about some other factors that might influence the progression of dilator training. Let's maybe start with negative influences, and then we can go into positive influences. So for our negative influences, I think there's a big um, connection with trauma in the pelvis, um, whether that's been from, you know, something in their past, whether they've talked to you about it or not. We always want to assess that in the beginning, just to see if there has been anything that's limiting them, their anxiety levels, if there's a um, mental health practitioner that they are seeing, or if they haven't been seeing, we might need to get them in with that. Um, I also find if they have tried dilators in the past on their own, that might be anxiety stricken as well. Um, so they may have that like, like, well, I've tried this, I've tried everything, it's still not working. Yeah, those are great points. You know, I the analogy I give patients, and I've mentioned it multiple times in this podcast is, you can only poke yourself in the eye so many times before your eye is going to instinctively close. And I think that's exactly what happens within the pelvic floor if dilator training doesn't go well or intercourse trials don't go well. That pelvic floor just kind of goes and shuts off because that's how it can, you know, stop that negative stimuli. So now that we've kind of talked about those negative um, issues that affect the pelvic floor dilator training, let's maybe talk about some positive factors that we could have in combination with dilator training to make it go a little bit more smoothly. So with our positive factors, typically what... Um, can help us out is going to be more of that interprofessional um, work between different providers. So if we have an individual who may be a little bit low on estrogen, say they're postmenopausal or there's something else going on, maybe even they're breastfeeding, um, we may need to have them see OBGYN, get some vaginal estrogen to help um, get a little bit more mobility into the tissues, kind of bring out the healthy aspect of that vaginal canal. Um, we also have options uh, such as like the vaginal O-shot as well as laser therapy or radiofrequency treatments that can help um, those muscles kind of get that um, disengagement or relaxation to occur. And then in combination with physical therapy, being able to, you know, digitally stretch those muscles and then 
combining that with the dilator training on their own or in the clinic um, to help give them a little extra boost. So. Great. And I even have some patients where it's like, we'll get to a certain point in the dilator training, and then we just kind of hit this roadblock. Um, and so those patients might benefit from like a lidocaine or a Botox injection to the pelvic floor to decrease that pelvic tone as well. Um, and same thing, OBGYNs can do that as well. Certain providers just like that's a big thing for pelvic therapists and um, listeners out there just to know, like know what's out there, know what providers are around you and what different options there are to support you in this journey of the dilator training for sure. Um, and so, you know, now let's maybe chat a little bit about how do we position patients in the clinic? How should they be positioned at home when they're doing their own dilator training, Sarah? Typically the way I like to position my patient um, is going to be in the clinic. They're laying on their back. So supine position. Um, I usually have one leg out kind of like a butterfly into that abduction um, with the knee bent. And then the other leg for me is straight. I know some therapists like to have the other knee bent so they're in a full butterfly and they just have pillows on either side. Um, but for me, I like having one leg nice out and relaxed. I feel like that's a easier position for the therapist to keep them relaxed in, easier position for patient to stay relaxed in. So I will take that position and kind of modify it at home for their dilator use, just so they can reach and feel comfortable. They don't feel like their arm is like straining because we want the whole body to be relaxed. So often say, I want you to prop up a bunch of pillows, make sure there's a pillow under your knee, try and feel nice and relaxed. So propping up pillows behind their back so they can reach easily. And then I have them stay in that position, you know, to kind of relax in that position first before they even get to it. Sometimes we may have to have them get a mirror. So then they'll have to kind of prop a mirror up as well, but we want them, you know, we want it to be stable. We don't want them to have to hold a bunch of different things. So that's usually where I'll start with positioning. Um, once they get a little bit more confident with it, say they are working through their dilators, they're, they're starting intercourse and they're like, well, I I've noticed it's painful painful in more of like if female on top position or if we're doing a different position with intercourse. So from there, we'll start experimenting. Okay, maybe we need to try the dilators in the position you want to have intercourse in. So we can try different positioning there. We can even try that in the clinic together. So they feel confident about trying it at home as well. Um, but that's, you know, a little bit ways down the line. Typically our beginning stages, leg is in, you know, bent out and relaxed. We want to be as, as relaxed in the pelvis as possible. Definitely. Yeah. I usually will say once we get to the size that's similar to their partner, that's when I'll kind of start different positions in the clinic. Cause I say, Hey, I want to make sure that you're going to be successful with your intercourse trial at home. And so, you know, we'll transition to the missionary position. Can you tolerate that dilator the same size as your partner? Can you tolerate it with movement simulating similar to intercourse? And then like you had just said, Sarah, too, I'll have them at home or in the clinic. You know, if you're going to try a new position, I really encourage you to try it with a dilator first. So if there is any discomfort, you still continue to associate with the dilator and not your partner, um, because we don't want you to feel like you're regressing because there is some tenderness in a new position. So if you're able to assess that with the dilator and work through that tension first, that's usually kind of best case scenario um, that I have found. Um, and so, you know, 
say if they have met their goals in the clinic, Sarah, and they've gotten to the dilator, the size of their partner, what is your kind of weaning program for them? So you're, they're done in the clinic, okay, so it's their last visit and they're asking, okay, so now what? Do How often do I use it? How long do I do it for? What is kind of your baseline for that kind of middle of the road presentation? So I'd say with once they're getting to that stage, they've probably been on an every other day program at home as far as their dilating is set up. So usually I'll initiate once they get their dilators, I'll start them on every other day, at least 10 minutes, um, whether that's with movement, static hold, all of the above that we've kind of talked about um, from there. Um, if intercourse is going well, we'll let them know like, OK, maybe we'll just start um once a week, maybe we'll go down to, you know, maybe two, one time a week, just kind of feel it out. If pain starts to come back, maybe you need to continue on for a little bit longer with every other day. Um, from there, hopefully then, you know, if intercourse is pain-free and regular, they, sh- you know, regularly occurring, um, then it goes down to more of a symptom-based and, and stress-based, you know, what is, what is their trigger? So hopefully by that point we have established, okay, so when you're in a state of, you know, more stress, say you're, um, you know, I don't know, just busy at home or even the kids are doing something weird and you're just like tensed up, that would be a good time to be like, oh yeah, I should probably dilate at the end of the day just to make sure my pelvis is relaxing. I'm getting a full body relaxation um, before I'm going into any intercourse or even putting a tampon in. Say it is more of a pathology-based presentation. They have endometriosis or PCOS. I'm going to have them probably dilate close to the time of either ovulation or, um, or their menstrual cycle, because that's the time when their muscles are going to tighten up. So I'll make sure that they're dilating regularly around that time. So it can be a lifelong, um, lifelong thing for them, uh, for some individuals, hopefully not for everybody. And hopefully it, you know, continues to relax and continues to stay down. But if it's more of a chronic condition, sometimes it's like once a month, um, depending on, on their presentation. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would agree completely. I always tell them that like, it's kind of a slow wean and let your symptoms be your guide. If anything worsens, then increase your frequency again. But the research shows if you have a steady partner and you're having intercourse about once every two weeks, that should be enough frequency to maintain the changes made with your dilator training. And again, everybody is different. Um, and you know, so you, you have vaginismus and then you're able to dilate and have intercourse course and then you get pregnant. I've seen some patients maybe slightly regress during pregnancy or even postpartum. Maybe they're they're nervous so they don't have intercourse during pregnancy. And then of course we have that six week rest period postpartum. Um, and so those are individuals that if I know they are family planning, I will kind of give them that heads up like, hey, please try and stay sexually active throughout your pregnancy. Your OBGYN will let you know if it's unsafe to have intercourse. But a majority of those people out there it is totally safe and honestly recommended to continue because it helps to stretch the vaginal canal. It gets your body ready for labor and delivery and that dilating that occurs naturally. Um, and so 
I always encourage patients to, you know, be safe and try and continue with that. And then if you notice anything coming back postpartum, you should have the tools and all the knowledge you need to continue with your dilator training at home and go back kind of through the program that we did in the clinic. Um, Sometimes with those patients at home, if they're really struggling with, say, the largest size, I'll say, okay, put the second to largest size in. Now, put it only in about 50%. Now, I want you thinking of vagina like a clock. I want you pressing at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and 4 o'clock for 30 seconds at each position, and then proceed to the next level. I think just getting a little bit of a stretch, which is what generally pelvic therapists do to the vaginal tissues prior to the dilator training in the clinic, can really help to get those last few stretches in to accommodate the largest dilator size. Um, what other techniques do you use or have patients do to kind of help progress them to that next size of dilator, either in the clinic or at home, Sarah? Definitely. Some, um, I'm always making sure that they've got that pelvic push going. Um, I also have tried like a contract relax type of technique, whether that's to the actual pelvic floor muscles themselves, being able to kind of do that Kegel contraction and then relaxation. So going through the full range of the motion of the muscle. Um, as well as we can also do contractor locks to like obturator internus with the hip external rotators. Um, and then just kind of using, like you said, using that dilator as a wand, trying to get specific muscles. So say it's only at the entrance of the vaginal canal. Maybe we're just inserting it a couple inches. Maybe we're just stretching those tissues um, as, as a wand to where you're getting excuse me, where you're getting those, that relaxation occurring. Um, I, I, I do like the contract relax myself. It is, is a great tool to get the muscle to notice this is my tension and now we're releasing the tension. So kind of being mindful about it as well when we're going through that. And what that feels like for those listeners is contracting is like doing a Kegel, squeezing your muscles like you're not going to let urine or gas escape, squeezing it as hard as possible, and then just trying to reach down to that basement level I talk about. You know, you Kegel, you're going up about 10 floors, and then when you relax, we want you going back down to that basement level. Um, and I think, you know, Sarah commented that when we do dilator training, it's very slow. And by very slow, I mean like five to 10 minutes to just achieve full insertion, right? When we are trying to take it up to the next level, it's going to be slow. We're going to hit tender points that you're going to have to do these different techniques to get through that next barrier. Um, for those women out there listening, the best analogy I can say for women that may be able to use tampons, but can't have intercourse, you know, when you put in a tampon and it seems like tight, 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 and then all of a sudden it kind of just slides in and opens up. That's where I say, it's that last layer and then you know once you've passed it and because of that one kind of tight sphincteric layer I will tell individuals when you have intercourse for the first couple times let's not have full penile thrusting occur let's just have it be about half of your partner's shaft in the beginning just so that we're not entering and removing and entering or removing at that tight and most tender layer um, and then once you feel comfortable with that movement slowly increase the level of thrusting that's occurring until you feel like those muscles aren't squeezing and they are relaxing and there isn't pain with that full motion of that penile penetration. 
To, to piggyback on that, there are other devices out there too that can help you with that. If say you've, your muscles are relaxing and maybe it's more the length of the vaginal canal that is your uh, last thing that you're working on with those dilators, that can be a little bit more tender. There are um, little silicone rings out there um, that you can put on your partner's penis to wear it won't go fully inserted, but then intercourse can still be felt um, and have a similar experience throughout. So that is definitely something to, if you're curious about, talk to your public health specialist or your public health therapist um, about those because they're readily available. Um, I just don't think people know about these fun little tools that can help you out, especially if you're working on like one specific thing. No, that's great. Um, and I also think, you know, one thing when you're doing the dilator training, whether it's here in the clinic or at home, the tissues that are going to stretch the most are the ones inferior or pressing down. A lot of patients in the beginning are like, oh, I don't like that sensation. It makes me feel like I have to poop. And I'm like, well, pressure is good. Your tissues can really only stretch downward because upward we're running into urethra, we're running into pubic bone. And so if you're trying to push to that next level, even with insertion of the dilator, if you put some good moderate pressure downward as you're inserting, that can really help to decrease that tone. Um, another thing that can really help to progress you is um, anal rectal lidocaine. There's lidocaine creams out there that can help to gently numb the tissues. Um, I think that's best indicated for those individuals that have that persistent burning pain at insertion because the lidocaine generally will only reach the first or second layers of the pelvic floor musculature. And so if that is you where you're like the very beginning, it's super burny. There are different lidocaine creams out there that you can obtain. Um, in our clinic, we just use the Walgreens brand 5% anal rectal lidocaine cream. And that is all that is in it. It is just lidocaine. Um, um, there are some different compounding creams out there where it's a mix of lidocaine and estrogen. But if you can find the 5%, we have found that that is the best. A lot of the compounding creams are maybe two and a half percent lidocaine and then something else. And it just doesn't quite get it as much as the 5% does. And when we put on the lidocaine, either in the clinic or at home, we want to address the tissues from about three o'clock to nine o'clock. We want to avoid clitoris and urethra. We don't want those going numb, of course. And so if you're putting lidocaine on at home, I tell patients to put about a toothpaste amount on the pad of their thumb, because that's usually the easiest digit to insert and sweep on those inferior angles. It's kind of awkward if you try and put on your pointer finger and do that, it's just not the right angle for sure. And so if you're that individual that has that burning pain, but otherwise everything else is okay, lidocaine's a great option. And if patients are using it with dilating, I highly encourage them to continue using it with intercourse in the beginning, just so we don't get back into that like negative pain loop cycle again. Um, and most of the time when patients are going to have intercourse for the first time, I say, okay, I want you to do the dilator first. I want you to involve your partner with this. You know, once you're at the dilator, the same size as them, get them involved. 
have them do the insertion, talk them through what you're feeling so they can know what's the right angle, where is that most tender point, they can really, it will help you gain a better connection, both emotionally and physically. And then, you know, I'll say, right, if you have an awesome dilator session, there's no pain, goes in super easy, immediately follow it up with intercourse because your vaginal tissue has been stretched, there's been no discomfort, you should have minimal to no difficulties with intercourse. As long as you give that lidocaine about a three minute application time, there is no transfer to your partner. Um, I know that's usually a big question patients have and no. Um, vaginal mucosa is a whole nother anatomy than penile skin is. So they just absorb totally differently. But I will say the one kind of nagging thing about lidocaine is for about the first 10 to 15 seconds of application, it does have a little bit of a burning sensation because it's an exothermic reaction as it's causing that numbing. And so I always got to warn people that, let them know it does go away. Um, and then um, after use, wipe, make sure we're, we're cleaning well, wiping front to back so that we're not spreading the lidocaine to structures that we do not want it on. Um, and that's kind of the gist of, of lidocaine and using that with kind of your, your dilator progression. Do you have anything else you would like to speak on in regards to lidocaine, Sarah? I think the only thing that you didn't hit on that I, I try to do is to try to wean them off of the lidocaine at some point. Um, so whether that's like just reducing the amount we're either using in the, in the clinic or at home being like, okay, so now this time I want you to go down a size and dilator when you go home without the lidocaine and see how you do, um, and then try and work your way back up, um, but yeah, definitely. I, I utilize the lidocaine very frequently. If a individual is coming in and their pain is above, I like to stick around that four out of 10 as well uh, on the pain rating scale. If their pain, even with just light pressure with my, my finger is above that four, or they can't withstand insertion of a digit, then we'll start talking about the lidocaine right away, just so we can get their program off and running. Good. I think kind of the last bit that I think is important to talk about in this conversation is you got to get past the clinical aspect of dilator training. You know, it is for a point of stretching, but you have to think of your ultimate goal. So if the ultimate, so not everybody's goal is intercourse, right? I've had patients where their goal, they're an adolescent. They just, they're on swim team or they're a gymnast. They don't want to have to wear pads. They just want to be able to use a tampon. And so you know, same idea. We'll have them come into the clinic. Um, certain pelvic therapists are certified to treat individuals under the age of 18. Um, my rule of thumb is generally I won't treat anybody under the age of 16 and their factors must be one of these goals. Like I need to use a tampon for X, Y, or Z. Parents of course are always present during the treatment session. But say your goal is to achieve intercourse and you have a steady partner, try to transition the dilator training to not be so clinical. A, that gets really annoying. Nobody loves homework, right? Especially when it's something that sensitive. So I'll say, okay, bring your partner in, get them involved, um, have fun with it, try and make it not so clinical. Some patients, if they are having difficulty getting to that last size, I'll say, try this for me because I've had some pretty good results. Have an orgasm, a clitoral orgasm prior to dilating. And what that does is it can actually 
A, get the brain in a whole different mind space. And then B, it causes that general relaxation over the muscles. Because right when we achieve climax, those muscles kind of spasm and squeeze. And after that, they just have full relaxation. And so I've had patients try that and had really good results with it. So again, just if your goal is intercourse, try to move away from being super, super clinical at home and, and try a couple other things to see if it makes things better or worse. Cause then that can really help you transition to have successful intercourse when it's that time. Do you have any interesting pearls in that regard to Sarah on like how to kind of change things at home, like music, candles, you know, all the stuff that's more sensual, I think can really get you in a better mindset. Oh, definitely. I, I definitely go more towards that relaxation aspect of it um, as a, you know, in the beginning and all of that, but like starting to bring partner in, I think is really important and getting them involved with it. Um, once your anxiety is over dialing, you're feeling confident. Yeah. It starts to be like, okay, now this is our end goal. I, I really like that you're adding the clitoral orgasm into that um, just because that's something that we want to make sure is happening as well with the dilators and with partner, right? We want to make sure that if that is end game, that's something you're practicing. Um, so yeah, I'm right on board with all of that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I think we've pretty much touched on everything. So Sarah, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? Well, I really just hope that individuals, if you're listening from a, a clinician standpoint, know that dilators are a great tool to use with your patients um, and, and they can help give them that good autonomy and that good confidence that they're seeking because everybody wants to be independent with their pelvic floor, right? They don't want to have to rely on somebody else to be like, hey, well, I got to go see Sarah to get my pelvis released, right? Like eventually we're PTs. We want to get them out and being independent on their own. Own. Um, so definitely utilize the tools that we have available for them to be able to achieve that. Um, and then as far as if you're more on the patient side of things and you're an individual who is maybe tried dilators and fearful and they're like, it didn't work. Maybe we're just missing a little factor. Maybe we just need to get those muscles that contract, relax going, or, you know, just adding that little bit into it. So I wouldn't give up on them quite yet as far as dilators are concerned concerned, they can be a great tool when used appropriately. Um, and, and working with, you know, that interdisciplinary team of providers to help you get there can be really important as well. So feeling free to reach out to, of course, a physical therapist, but maybe your OBGYN to see if they have any ideas, maybe implementing a lidocaine cream that's over the counter to help kind of reduce those pains. I think um, just not having pain in general can be a huge life-changing event for individuals. So definitely, you know, you can utilize these tools too. So def um, definitely just like keep working on it. You're so right. You know, some patients, I've treated a patient for almost a year in conjunction with sex psychology. And so just keep working at it. Everybody is different. Everybody has different considerations to take into account. And so again, just slow and steady and don't give up. The tissues were meant for this and they will achieve it. You just got to be patient and use all the tools that you have and 
reach out to people for for help you'd be surprised millions of women suffer from pelvic pain dyspareunia vaginismus worldwide so you are not alone there are so many social media outlets out there that have groups that you can reach out to for other tips as well and you know you can um we'll give our contact info at the end of this podcast you can reach out to either of us if you have specific questions um and and just be your advocate you do not need to suffer in pain it is achievable um so thank you for listening if you'd like to speak with a specialist please email podcast at mlrehab.com i would like to thank sarah for coming on the show today and sarah if listeners want more information would like to get into contact with you what is the best way to do so so the best way is to reach out through Mountainland. Um, I am at the Murray location, Mountainland Rehabilitation. You can go online. Um, you can look us up directly. Um, you can also contact me through my email. We've got Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-S, at mlrehab.com, or you can contact our Murray location, which is just M-U-R-R-A-Y at mlrehab.com and they can get you in contact with me great so again thank you for listening also save the day may 13th 2022 mountainland is hosting the first annual pelvic health summit in park city utah please tune in next month's episode and remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.